this is where we ended uh, last week in going, going through Luke. And one thing we might, you know, state at the first, that as we go through here, uh, just as in the introduction some other parts, we'll note uh, the various evidences of its inspiration and of its truthfulness, and we'll look at anything from a historical or archaeological standpoint that, uh, that helps us understand it. And then also anything dealing with the prophecies and any unique thing. But remember that the all of that is done for one reason, and that is to get to the part that uh, we really apply to our lives and it affects us both here and, and in the hereafter. That if Christianity is true, then it's the greatest truth we can ever come in contact with. Uh, if it's false, then Paul himself said, then we ought to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And so the reason for studying in meticulous detail all the points that have to do with the evidence for or against its inspiration, uh, the historicity, the accurateness of it and all, uh, is to determine and uh, in our mind the, the body of evidence behind it uh, in order that we would have the attitude of heart of, of wanting to apply these other matters. And what I'm saying is uh, I'm thinking of one guy that I read from in an evidence book by the name of Rogers, and he made the statement that it was hard for the heart to rejoice in what the mind rejected. And I think that's true, that in, in the final analysis, even though people may create a setting that is very warm or emotional or, or where things are said that they like or whatever the situation, in the final analysis, I don't know that the heart can really and truly give itself 100% uh, if there is doubt in the mind. And so we think then it's important to, to take the time to examine those materials that, that have to do with the evidence for it. But then the bottom line all the way through is, is the putting of this material in the mind and actually uh, acting on it. Uh, in our lives and, and <coughs> doing what God would have us do with the material as we live our lives here. And of course the bottom line is the, the eternal life that it offers to us. As we go through here, we've been paying particular attention to just the personality of Jesus. Uh, we can read a lot of things about Jesus outside the Gospels when it comes to in the evidence realm, that we can go to secular history and read that he lived and he was executed, uh, that there was an empty tomb three days later, and there were a lot of people that believed it so strong that they turned the Roman world upside down. And we can read a lot of other particulars. But there's absolutely no other literature anywhere where we can learn anything at all about the personality of Jesus and, and his actual person and the way he thought and what motivated him and the way he handled himself than in the Gospels. It, it just simply isn't anywhere else. And so as we go through, we want to look at not only what he says and the, the actual teaching and all, but we want to look at him as a person uh, and the way he handled himself in the various situations because, uh, as Paul would say later on in the letters, the bottom line about being a Christian, so far as this life is concerned, is the emulation of Christ in our own life. Uh, Paul said, uh, follow me as I follow Christ, or imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
another time he would say, have this attitude in you, which was first in Christ Jesus. Uh, and then we learn that Christ is to dwell in our hearts through faith. And so the, the better understanding that I have of Jesus, then obviously the more accurately that he can dwell in my heart. And I'm convinced, at least personally, that, that there's a lot of very sincere people that, that have an inaccurate uh, Jesus dwelling in their heart in, in many ways. All right, let's look here at this part, uh, beginning with verse 36 and, uh, of chapter 7. And this is where we ended our discussion last time. And so let's go through it and read that uh, uh, historical example there and then look at a, a few things that would be parallel with it in the life of Christ. Uh, Hugh, would you read that beginning with verse 36? And read on down through the uh, end of the chapter. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived in a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came in, into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her, with, with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this? who even forgive sins. And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay. Let's look at first at um, uh, Jesus. Uh, he's living under the law of Moses. He's the Messiah that has come. And Luke records this incident uh, about one of the Pharisees inviting Jesus to dinner, and he's going to the Pharisee's house. At this time, the Pharisees are regarded as, as the absolute most conservative denomination in Judaism. Uh, they believed all of the Torah. They believed the Psalms. They believed the writings. They believed in the spiritual world, in the, in the angels. They believed in the Messiah to come. They believed in eternal life. Uh, tremendous respect for the scriptures. They, they originated as a group uh, really... Uh, from good motivation. Uh, 
uh, Alexander the Great had conquered the uh, civilized world at that time, and of course the Jews had been scattered, going back to the Babylonian and, and the Assyrian captivities, been scattered among that world, and so they, along with other peoples, were being influenced by the Greek culture. Well, these uh, devout Jews were very concerned that this Greek culture was going to uh, circumvent the law of Moses in various ways. So the Pharisees uh, were concerned that the Jews not leave the law, that they go back to the law, that they not allow the culture they was in to lead them astray. They were the separated ones. And so they wanted the devout Jews to separate themselves from all of the ugly things of the world and to be a pure people waiting for the Messiah to come. Uh, they believed that the law of Moses ought to be kept as exact as you could. And, and they would meticulously study every law. And they had great debates on what was the most important commandment and things of this nature. And so Jesus now, it, it, an interesting thing about him, here he is, the Messiah. There's the Pharisees. The Sadducees would have been the liberals of that day, you know, the Episcopalians. Uh, they believed the Torah, but they did not accept the inspiration of the rest of the books, and they rejected uh, eternal life. They believed you had it right here, and, and that was it. Uh, they would have been somewhat similar to the deist in that they believed God, and then believed that uh, God was watching what was going on, and you had the law, and then that's all that you had is pretty much right here. So they believed whatever you accomplished was going to be accomplished right here in, in this world. Then you had the zealots who were uh, real devout Jews that were concerned with overthrowing Rome, and they wanted the Messiah to come and lead them in this great picture <coughs> of overthrowing Rome. You had the Essenes, which would have been similar to maybe the Mennonites who had just separated themselves entirely from that culture. Well, these were the Jewish sects in the Law of Moses as Jesus pops on the scene. And throughout the Gospels, you have his interaction. Uh, primarily, you have his interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then you have his interaction with the priest of the temple, and then you have his interaction with all the common people. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, we might ask, uh, as we look at this, which one of the sects did he identify with? Didn't identify with any of them. You, you couldn't have, you cannot say that Jesus agreed with the most conservative. The Pharisees are the most liberal. The Sadducees are the zealots or, or whatever. He really didn't identify uh, with any one of them. Uh, he actually uh, stayed kind of aloof and, and and made the statement that uh, these people have set themselves in the seat of Moses, like Matthew 23. If they're teaching you from the law of Moses, then do it. But don't be like they are, you know, or anything, anything like that. So he adhered to the law. Now, he goes to the house of a, of a Pharisee, and here is a woman that says she's lived a sinful life. And here is Jesus now, keep in mind, here is our perfect moral individual. Uh, the only one that's ever lived his life exactly like God would have us live it. And he's there with a Pharisee and a woman and that's lived her life sinfully. And who does he wind up complimenting in this encounter? The, the sinful woman. Okay, she winds up complimenting. 
And the Pharisee actually winds up with a put down. So here's a sinful woman that winds up complimented. And the Pharisee winds up with a put down. And we began to see something uh, in uh, Jesus because this kind of thing is recorded over and over uh, in, in the Gospels. That this, uh, this sinful woman, what was there about her, about her that so turned on Jesus, if that's the right, to words, you, the right words to use spiritually? What was it about her that really caused him to be impressed with her? She said she loved much. Okay. She had a lot of sins. She was obviously humble. She was humble. She obviously had repented because he didn't forgive unless you repent. They were, he was preaching a message just like John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So she's obviously repented. She's obviously humble. She obviously loves him. And then he says, look at, we see a forerunner to the great New Testament. Uh, in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Okay, now, think about how different this is. This is absolutely unique to Jesus in his culture. Okay, later on, Paul will develop it for us. But how did the Pharisee and the Jewish religious leaders believe in the final analysis you were saved at this time? Okay, that even uh, though they offered the sacrifices and all, they offered those sacrifices... But they still had this attitude. In fact, the Pharisees had this attitude that uh, you're kind of going to be weighed in the balance. And all your good works are over here. And your bad things are over here. And if the good outweighed the bad, uh, then you, you had it made. Well, uh, think about some of the funerals you've gone to. Now, some of you younger uh, may not have been to many, but those of us, I, I've conducted a multitude of funerals, and I've been to a lot, a whole lot of funerals. And most funerals, people will stand up there and talk about the good things about that person. By the way, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's almost as if she's going to go to heaven because, or he's going to go to heaven because they've done all these good things. And and so that, and we don't even want to talk about the bad because that'd be that might leave the impression we don't think that person's going to heaven. So if we ever we talk about just the good, it's at the funeral, and it shows a little bit of this concept of. Of, of judgment, you know, and all. Well, now, let's look at our two here. What if, uh, what if you weighed all of her good deeds and her bad things about her, and you weighed all the good things about the Pharisee and all the bad things? I wonder which one would look the best. Probably the, the Pharisee. In other words, uh, uh, he prob obviously he's more respectable in the community. For him to be in fellowship with other Pharisees, he'd have to come up to he'd have to give ten percent, for example. He'd have to keep the Sabbath day. He'd have to offer his uh, sacrifices. Uh, he couldn't go around just overtly murder or commit adultery and things like that, you know. So he, he, she obviously is an adulterer. Uh, and but, well, let's look over here at uh, the eighteenth chapter. Don't you think that the big difference is that she recognizes her sin and, and she's, she's really sorry because she's crying? Right. Right. Things to be the difference. Right. What does it mean when he's saying she loved much? Is it that she's showing her love and that she's humbling herself? I mean, okay, he said that, Simon, I came into your house 
and you didn't do anything for me. You know, see, it was a common courtesy in that day to supply people water to wash their feet, or if you had a servant, <coughs> the servant washed their feet. And so he was, uh, Simon's kind of reserved about Jesus. He doesn't even supply him water, apparently, to wash his feet. He doesn't greet him. She, she had kissed him. Simon had been, hasn't greeted him in any special way. In other words, obviously from that statement by Jesus, he's shown no affection towards him. And he sits back here. In other words, Simon's thinking of himself, obviously, is a pretty good person. All right? This woman is down there kissing his feet. When it says she washed his feet with his tears, we mentioned last time that, uh, that literally in, in one of the customs of this day was for the ladies when they mourn to catch their tears in a, a vase. And over a period of time, they would accumulate a lot of tears, and that showed the depth of their mourning. And so what probably happened here when it says she washed his feet with her tears is she used her tear vase. And it could have been all the tears that had accumulated, uh, we don't know, uh, after her repentance and being forgiven and things like that. But she was crying. So she's obviously very... What we was talking about is why that more of these people that we don't reach, and keep in mind the Pharisees didn't reach people like this lady <coughs> or the publican. They, they weren't reaching them at all, and, and they were that concerned, but yet Jesus did. Well, the article dealt with this guy who uh, was a devout Christian, went to a regular church, you know, just like we do and all, and it was a true thing that happened. And so he met a friend of his that they had known in years past, but now this friend, you know, had uh, lived a different life and therefore was involved with people that had AIDS and shot drugs and things of this nature. So he went home with him uh, to visit. And in the process, they went into some of the shanty places that these people lived, and he felt extremely uncomfortable. I mean, they're, they're drinking, doing drugs, they've got AIDS and things of this nature, and then the very neighborhood itself, and he made it clear that he just felt totally uncomfortable and totally out of place uh, all during that thing, very uncomfortable. Then he invited his friend to come to church with him, and the friend, uh, first he didn't want to, and then he agreed, but anyway, I don't remember all the details now, it's been some weeks since I read it, but the bottom line was, that when the friend came to church from that culture, he felt as uncomfortable. And he said for the first time he could identify with how he did feel uncomfortable there because he had just had the experience of going into his culture that when that person came into the building and here you got this nice building and everybody's there in their suits and ties and everything like that and everything is real formal and and everything is uppity up and and you would never guess that anybody in there is a sinner or did anything wrong or anything like that, you know, and we're all the respectable people, that everybody's, you know, they got their marriages right and they got all this good stuff right. Well, then here this guy comes in from this other world and he feels very uncomfortable and feels that they look down on him. And he pointed out that he began to realize that, that if we wait for those people to come into our buildings, they're never going to come for the same reason that we don't like going into their culture. They don't feel comfortable. And they honestly, not only do they not feel comfortable, they feel that we look down on them. 
that we don't respect them, uh, that we don't we don't understand them, and so they f simply don't feel comfortable in in that situation. And of course, his point is that the only way we're going to reach these people is to go out. All right. Now, I would suggest to you that the reason that we reach the people we do reach are these middle income middle type people are some of the higher up is because that when we build our nice buildings and we go to them in our suits and ties and all, these people feel very comfortable in that. In fact, if you had something that was a little less than that, they may not come. And so when we invite these people, they feel very comfortable with a suit and a tie and the nice building and everything like that and, and, and the opportunity to meet good people and, and respectable people that are raising their kids in a certain way so their kids can make friends with them and all of that kind of thing. But this other group, they're not going to be there at all. Well, the point is that as we look at this, and we said at the beginning, what we really wanted to look at was the person of Jesus. That Jesus spent a tremendous amount of time out among the downtrodden and the sinful, and he associated with people that the religious leaders of that time would not associate with. And he was criticized because he spent so much time associating. Remember, the again, we'll get to Luke later on in the, the prodigal son. And we, we read those things in church and we study them. But somewhere I think that we're not really acting on them in a the right way because Jesus literally did associate with those people and he made an impact. And all the time he was doing it, he was really coming on strong to these very conservative Pharisees and priests and Levites in letting them know that they had really missed true religion. Uh, they thought of the <coughs> Sabbath as man made for the Sabbath rather than the Sabbath made for man. Well, their whole idea about the law was that uh, it, it's like uh, man was made for the law rather than the law itself uh, made for man. And they had things completely out of perspective as a result of it. And so as we follow Jesus, we see somebody that, if you go back and I think to fully appreciate it, you study his culture and you study the religious groups this time, and there was nobody like Jesus. There, there just were no rabbis or Pharisees or, or priests or Levites that were out mingling among the common people. And there was nobody uh, this benevolent, and there was nobody uh, among the Jews taking issues, taking issue with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the Levites and the priests and, and saying, hey, you're wrong here, and et cetera, et cetera. And so he stands out unique in, in two different ways there. He is, he is tackling the religious establishment. And then at the same time he tackled the religious establishment, he was associating with the downtrodden in life himself and he would construct these parables where the the hero if we're going to call it that was somebody that possessed a certain spiritual quality even though they may have been the type of person that was looked down on in in that in that particular culture and so i think in in looking at that and then also this thing at the the statement in verse 50 verse 50 your faith has saved you go in peace this is unique to Jesus, that you, you have your, your statement of, of salvation based on faith. And this woman hasn't had enough time to go out here and, 
and keep all the laws or, or and there's all kinds of things she doesn't understand and we keep running into this over and over throughout the Gospels and again to fully appreciate it uh, note the fact that it was absolutely unique from Je with Jesus and then the question becomes where did Jesus what did he come in contact with that motivated this kind of thinking now you and I can think this way because we've had contact with Jesus. But I'm saying put yourself in his environment. And I know when I put myself in his environment, I'd have probably been as much a Pharisee as the Apostle Paul. You know, from a Pharisee uh, standpoint, uh, I, I can't see myself coming to this kind of understanding through my own study and everything in that kind of environment because I know how long it took me to see this when I had Jesus right in front of my face, you know, in all Paul's letters, because of the environment I had and the past I had. I know how long it took for me to get there. But Jesus, I'm saying, he didn't have the letters of Paul and his own example. And yet he's there with the emphasis on that kind of spirituality and faith and love, and he's tackling the religious establishment. And the question is, what is there in that environment that produces a Jesus? I don't know. Uh, I, I cannot. Uh, I think uh, that that is one of the multitude of evidences of his, of his claim to be who he claimed he was and of the inspiration and the truthfulness of the account itself. And like one man made the statement, even of the writers that constructed this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if they invented it, then water has risen higher than its source because they had no contact with anything. There was just no religious group whatsoever. And to appreciate it fully, think of your, what you know right now and all the things you understand and then think of how you got to that point. And I suggest you got there through studying information and by examples in contact with people that already were there in, in, in various ways. That you just didn't on your own come out of an environment totally contrary to that and arrive at that, at that kind of situation. Any, any other comments? So what does this mean for, I mean... We've got a lot of churches out there and church buildings and people and all that are going. I mean, how I feel real uncomfortable about going out and talking to people who may be homeless or whatever. I've kind of fallen maybe into a trap. I don't know. I'm kind of looking for people who kind of look like me but have problems maybe that I don't have. Yeah, you know, well, that, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I, but I mean... When I see Jesus, it's just like, you know, go out and talk to these kind of people. I don't go out and go into no. hospitals and search for people with AIDS. What? Uh, go to where the homosexuals hang out and try to convince them, you know, they need to change or whatever. I don't, I just don't. I don't know that you have to go out like that, Mark. I think that uh, in the world that we live in, uh, I know right now, I mean, we're in a little secluded area up here. But in the world that I lived in before I got here, and in, even here in verse, you come in contact with these people all the time. I mean, when you go to work, 
you're, you're going to meet those people that have been divorced several times. Every now and then you're going to meet, you know, the homosexual. And you're going to meet this person that's living with somebody that they're not married to. And I'm saying that people that live this life, I deal with them constantly. You know, at, at school, you just, you have regular contact uh, with, with those people in our, you know, in our various encounters in life. That they're, they're there. So I don't know that we have to just go out and, and look for them. I think that we have to find a way to, to communicate when we come in contact with them. And, to, and I believe that, that it starts with not being aloof, uh, being very careful that they don't perceive us as looking down on them or, or anything of that nature. I think it comes from a, uh, maybe of a, a learning to convey an attitude that we realize that we are sinners, that, uh, that the, all, uh, we may be decked out in suits or whatever on Sunday morning but that we are all sinners saved by the grace of God. See, if I'm a sinner out there, it seems to me I could be, feel pretty comfortable coming to your building. If, everybody, if I know that everybody in there thinks of himself as a sinner saved only by the grace of God and knows that he deserves to die and lose his soul and be separated from God, and, and he's there in a religious service, like this woman that was crying, uh, literally rejoicing and thankful for the salvation that he has in Christ because there's no hope without him and he deserves uh, condemnation. It seems like if I'm out here doing drugs or living immoral or something like that, that I could feel comfortable among those people and think that maybe they've got something to, to offer me. But if I think of those people as the people who've got it all right and, and really are doing all the right things. You know, they, they've got it right and, and, and I think that they look down on me for my lifestyle and all, then I probably am not going in there. I, I, I'm saying I would, I'm not going to go in any place I feel un, uncomfortable. And so I'm, I'm probably not going into that situation. All right, and so... When these people do come in, so we invite these people into our Bible studies or into our services, and the question is, do we in our worship, like this woman here, do we really convey that we know that we are sinners saved by the grace of God and we're thankful, or do we project that we're going to heaven because we don't sing with a piano and we do the Lord's Supper every first day of the week, and we've got the proper sign on the door, and we've got the right organization. Or that we are the right type people. I mean, what are we really projecting? And by the way, I'm not putting any of those things down, but I'm saying that, that maybe we have, have uh, come across more like the Pharisees in those matters than the way Jesus actually was. And by the way, keep in mind, Jesus kept the law, didn't he? He tithed. He kept the Sabbath day. He says, these things you ought to have done and not neglected the other. So there's nothing wrong in that. But the impression, <coughs> I'm saying, the very nature of leaving the impression that we're saved because of any of this, I don't personally believe, and I don't want to toot the horn of the, the Baptist. I'm not a Baptist, and I don't plan to go into Baptist church. I'm not so what I'm saying. I don't believe it's any accident that of all the Protestant denominations, the Baptists are the largest group, numbering 
well over 15 million. We number somewhere around 2 million. Okay? I don't believe that's any accident. The, the Baptists have their various doctrines, and I differ with them on these. Uh, I don't believe premillennialism, and I don't believe once they've always said. But it's no accident that your evangelist, like Billy Sunday or Billy Graham, and some of these uh, Moody and some of these other people that have been so effective on a large area have been Baptists. The Baptists put tremendous emphasis on the fact that Jesus is their personal Savior and that everybody is a sinner saved by grace through faith. Tremendous emphasis on that. And so much so that they will make it clear that they believe that you can be in other groups and be saved if you've got Jesus for your Savior. They may tell you that they differ with you on various points, but the point is they, they make it clear that they understand salvation is in Christ and, and as long as you have repented and put your trust in Him, that we are all sinners, none of us know it all, we all come up short. I believe they do a better job of creating an atmosphere where people feel comfortable in. And again, keep in mind, I'm not endorsing uh, the denomination as such or anything, but I'm talking about an, about an attitude and a quality of recognizing <coughs> salvation in Christ. Uh, some of the other groups don't do any better than we do uh, in, uh, in conveying this quality that I'm talking about here. I think the message is to, is to take it to as many people as you can. And if, if you come in contact with homosexuals or whatever it is, don't exclude those people. You know, look on them as prospects also. And, and, and they would have a growth process. Right. Between, and they ought to be invited to our services. Between them and their Lord. Right. Uh, that's a growth process that we right. have to undertake. Right. Uh, but Mark, it, there are there are a number of ministries that reach out to uh, to the homeless and to the uh, to the uh, homosexual or whatever whatever group that is slipping through the cracks. But they seem to lose their focus. It's certainly not the focus that Jesus seems to have here. For instance, they have a, a ministry that feeds the homeless, and. Um, but I, it's almost like the homeless remain homeless, and they they stay in their problems, and they still have their drug problems. And right. They're not they're getting still, people to repent. There's some changes that have to take place. Jesus didn't leave this woman in this in the same condition he found her, or something motivated her to change and become just get on a different road than she had been traveling. And um, I, I'm reminded that I saw uh, in Rubel Shelley's latest. Bulletin or love lines where they had these ministries listed on the front, prison ministry and all of that. I, I don't know for a fact, but I would imagine that they would have a, an aggressive teaching program as a part of the ministry. Yeah, to actually, you know, change people in that respect. Yeah, yeah they're one of the churches in Chattanooga that is doing a lot of that. And on the other, I think it's good what you mentioned about some of these ministries, and yet we don't really see a change in life. That I think the the Salvation Army is at the other extreme from us. On the one hand, we're here with the law, 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 do it exactly right and everything like that, and man, you better bend to everything. On the other hand, they're over there, but they're feeding thousands of people, and thousands and thousands, and they, they're taking up, they're involved in benevolence. But like you said, you look at these people, and after they've, after they've been around the Salvation Army people for years, they're still drinking. And they're still doing drugs. And they're, and, and they're still out there. It's just that they're feeding them. And with Jesus, remember, uh, remember when he fed uh, the 5,000? 
And then they were pursuing him and following him, and he turned around and rebuked them. He said, you're not following me because of the miracle, you know, which testified of who he was, but you're following me because you want a free meal, is what he was saying. And he wasn't, going to, he wasn't in the business of just furnishing free meals. So that I think that between us and them, there's that, their attitude of getting right down there with those people, that's great, and I think we need to learn. I think the Salvation Army has something to teach us. Somehow or another, they get in there with them and all. But then, they're coming up short on actually getting people to repent of their sins. And the various ones you're talking about, I do know that, you know, that group, I would like to spend several weeks with that group and see how effective some of those ministries are and everything like that, because they're making an effort. But the point is, those groups like that are very small in number, you know, among us. You know, and then I think what... What we have to do, though, is that we're all individuals, and whether it's Darren or Mark or myself and each of you, we all go back to our congregations. And, and I think that each of us ought to go with what we're learning about Jesus and that personality, that we as an individual can be just like Jesus was. That if you're in an environment that is somewhat like the Sadducees or the Pharisees or whatever it is, that you can stand out as an individual and be like Jesus. You don't have to fall in line. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to be scared to, to tackle uh, some of the issues that maybe somebody is wrong on. You don't have to be scared to, to tell the brethren that, that we need to get out there and get more involved with these type people and to, and to bring them in. And I think that, that uh, we can look at Jesus and see that Jesus was an individual that he was able to serve God as an individual among all his sects. He didn't allow himself to be identified as a Pharisee or a Sadducee. I really believe that we ought to be identified just as Christians and that we ought to promote the will of God uh, to the best that we can. And that great truth he comes forth with here is telling her she's saved because of her faith. How many things did that poor lady not know at this point? Man alive. Uh, here she is. She, she knew enough to know she was a sinner and she needed to repent. And she had her faith. She understood some things about Jesus. And she was saved. And, and any one of us here would know a multitude more than, than what she did. And at that point, she begins her walk. With, right. It's a lifelong walk. And uh, sometimes I suspect you have good days and sometimes bad days. But uh, you... You know, your, your intentions are to have more good days than bad days. You know, you, you want an upper, an upper progression of being more like him. Like uh, I was thinking, too, on that is the situation, remember, we had when I first come here uh, before we, you know, had some of the problems and all and was studying with uh, a couple where each of them had been married before, divorced, re and then so their mates had been married. Now they were married. And so I'm studying with them. You know, I'm going up to their, uh, they were living in a trailer at the time, and I'd go, I was going up there once a week and studying and invite them to services. And see, they were married now and had a child. They had been caught in the act of adultery. And, and so then each had been divorced by their mate. But then each of their mates had remarried, and they were remarried, and people had children. So from a legal standpoint, it was hopeless. Yeah, well, it was, uh, I, you know, it, it was one of those things that, you know, I just, all I know is there, that I just come in contact with him. I was buying lumber from the man at the time, and I met her. She was his wife. And so I just, uh, I invite him to our study, and, I, and, and then they, somehow or another, we worked out, and I went up there and started studying the Bible with him. 
and they came to services. Well, then after they came to service, I forget whether they come once or twice, one of the members came to see me and let me know that if either one of them were baptized, that he would quit and half the congregation would leave with him. Well, then word got out to them, they never came back. And the study ended uh, at, at that point. Well, that's just an example, but I wonder how many times, you know, that type of thing that... Uh, uh, I've had several experiences similar to that over the years where somebody showed an interest and, uh, and then got run off on, on something dealing with this marriage thing. And we had a homosexual that we reached in the Northeast that had been to several other places. And, and uh, we wound up baptizing him. I still get a card every Christmas. I get a card from him. Uh, he still, he's not married. He still has a uh, the feeling or the desire for a male and everything like that and he fights that and believes it's wrong but the point is he can fight that just like somebody else might fight the, bo the bottle or something like that but we reached him because we had an atmosphere where he came in and everybody knew what he was but everybody treated him nice we invited him into our home and we studied and we wound up baptizing a homosexual and nobody was endorsing nor did he endorse you know, that particular uh, lifestyle. But I think that uh, when we look at Jesus, we see an interest in people, the recognition that everybody is a sinner, and we need to watch ourselves lest we don't be like the Pharisee and think of ourselves as being a little more right than the average, and even in the church, think of ourselves as being a little more right than the average group. And we need to recognize that we're all sinners saved by the grace of God. Jim? You know, I was just thinking about that. How can you change people if you run them off? No, you know. I mean, that, uh, just like that case you was talking about. It becomes a hopeless, hopeless thing. You, they stay in their situation, and uh, can't change them if you run them off. You can't change them if you won't have anything to do with them. You can't change them if you're not willing to uh, forgive. Uh, uh, if you're not willing to be vulnerable and let them know that uh, you know that you you've made some mistakes too, I think all of all of that is important here. I, I, I agree, Mark. Though I thought a whole lot like what you said about uh, talking to people that, that look a lot like me. You know, uh, dirty but not too dirty, and, yeah. and uh, sinful but not too sinful, and, yeah. and lost but not too lost, and. Yeah. It's pretty fearful thing. It's fear. Yeah. I was going to say. It's pretty I get afraid. Thing. I mean, it's fear of the unknown. Yeah. You know what? The interesting thing to me, the the of course she was in the military too, Hugh. One of the interesting things to me in the, when I went in the Marine Corps is that uh, I had several friends that lived lifestyles that I believed was wrong. You know, they drank and ran around things like that. That they were not married, but. Uh, Sometimes people like that, I found out that I had really, before I went to the Marine Corps, I really hadn't had much contact. I just didn't with that type of person or anything. But sometimes a person like that might be very unselfish. They may be very honest. They may have some very, they may be humble. And on the other hand, you can have a person who is morally upright in some of these things that can be very selfish and very proud and, and uh, quick-tempered. 
I mean, uh, you can have a, a, what we would call a righteous type person with a quick temper uh, and a sinner out here who's very calm, not quick temper. So I'm saying that, that, you know, it helped me to appreciate the fact that there are good qualities in people and some of these people, you know, that, you know, you'd think that given the right situation and all, that they can be reached, you know, a certain per, a certain percentage, just like just like anyone else. I think part of the uh, problem, Mark, is, at least for me, is that uh, I lose focus sometimes about what what it is that you know, that I would be doing. This thing about eternal life, uh, about having a chance to live on, is that's a pretty amazing concept when you when you think about it. Uh, and you know, if you can if you can give some, some strong evidence that that uh, that that uh, you know is is uh, can be expected. That that excites people, and uh, whether no matter what the background is, I mean, I still say that in our society, although we're a Christian society and all that, to to think that you can have a resurrection when everything around us, from our five senses that we can recognize with, dies and stays dead. And, and the only thing that we can do then is, is from a historical viewpoint, see that empty tomb. And then see all the, the, the folks that were alive in that first century that, um, I mean, they, they, just, they just turned the world upside down about this message of the resurrection, you know. But when, you, when we talk to these people in our, in our day and age, the message really has to be that, that still simple message that there's a resurrection. And they either get excited about that or they don't get excited about it. I mean, all you can do is sow seed, right? And maybe what, what, what we're fearful of is what do we do with it? So, so after we've talked to them, how, how far along do we go with them, you know? And a lot of it has to do with them. You know, and how, how sincere are they about them to learn more about that? That next chapter, you know, gets into the seed of the kingdom being the word of God. And I think that's sowing seed that if, you, if we quit thinking of just converting and realize that it just, you know, like you mentioned, where do we meet these people? I think that that every time, like the people you talk to at work or at school or anything, if you just think of uh, all the information you can get in, it's just being seed sowing. And it may be that somebody else will have to after you and somebody else after him, but somewhere or another that'll all culminate. And if you can say enough to get that person to study and in thinking, like Jesus said, seek and you shall find, and knock and it shall be open. But there are certain things sometimes that you can put in a person's mind to cause him to seek and, uh, and to become interested. And, and then, so, I mean, if you look at it that way, and at one time you may be reaping where another person is sowed, at another time you just may be doing, on this guy you're talking about, you may be doing the initial sowing and then hoping that somebody else is going to pick up. But, I mean, if we develop as habit... Uh, a policy where we look for opportunities to sow this seed in people's mind. Uh, if somebody says something that expresses doubt towards the Bible or its inspiration, then use it as an opportunity to get a few good words in for Christian evidences. And if we go to a funeral, uh, use it as an opportunity to get a few words in for the evidences for the resurrection or something like that. And then in, in whatever that people might be dealing with, if they're having problems in their marriage, if they're having problems with their children, then it becomes an opportunity to throw some thoughts from this in to let them know that you can have a happy marriage and you can have 
you can successfully rear your children in this in this environment and everything and put those thoughts in individuals' minds. But I think we, we do have a whole lot of opportunities like that. And then I think when they come to our services, the emphasis needs to be on this kind of thing. And I'm not talking down to anybody as far as when I look at the brotherhood because I was there. I was an absolute 100% Church of Christ preacher whose primary aim was to get people into that group doing those things right uh, and there wasn't a lot of spirituality to the to the preaching, and so. But I, I think that that. But at the time you thought there was. Oh yeah, but I, I'm saying that I what I the person I reached was somebody who had a background within the church, you know, and 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 I or somebody who maybe was in a denomination and believed, and I persuaded him to do a few more right things or something like that. But when I look back over the number of people that I baptized when I was here before and baptized even when we went down to Georgia and everything, to get out among this type of people and really convert them, I didn't. You know, I didn't. And, there was, and when I think about it, the message I was preaching didn't have a lot to offer uh, to those people. And, and I'm sure that many times they felt very uncomfortable even being around me. I'm, I'm saying, I, I, looking back on myself, I think I was a Pharisee. There's no, there's no way I can e escape that. But it also lets me know that, that some of these other Pharisees out there, if I can see it, and if Paul could see it, and these others, then they can see it too, and we have to keep that in mind, you know, and that's what we ultimately want. Uh, you know, it's interesting on the resurrection, how there's two different, uh, well, maybe, maybe more than just two, but two that come to my mind, uh, reactions or responses to that. One is the lifelong church goal that uh, when you ask him about the resurrection, his response may be, uh, yeah, you better be ready for it too. <laughs> but then somebody like John Clayton, maybe coming from an atheistic background, would be totally tickled to death if there was a resurrection, yeah. you see. And that goes in maybe hand in hand with what Jesus said, that he who has been forgiven much loves much. Sometimes it's, it's where you come from, the, the, how much you actually uh, uh, see of, of, of some of that. You know, the resurrection to a, a lifelong church goer may not be as big a deal to someone who, just the day before you you started explaining that to them, felt hopeless that this was all, all there was. You know, and if this is all there is, and you're living in, 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 as a bum or a homeless person or whatever. I, you know, it ain't much. It ain't much. If this is all there is, yeah. you see. And, uh, so I can see how you know, they could be considered a prize if the Lord said, well, we, if we can turn them around, it's a prize. Yeah. Any other comments before we close? <coughs> we'll pick up next week in that uh, the eighth chapter in the parable of the sower.